Hey, my name is Doug. I'm the senior pastor here at Live Oak. And last week, we started this uh, study in the book of Jonah, where Jonah is asked to do something. And it was so unthinkable for him that he just kind of responds to God like, you want me to do what? And we've all been there before, if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe even if you haven't, where you feel like God has asked you to do something, and you're like, you want me to do what? Like, for instance, recently, I felt like God's been wanting me to make a trip to Minneapolis, and (laughs) I just, like, you want me to do what? And I feel like one of you is going to be the reason I get to go. So I just, I mean, there's just a role we all play in what what God's doing. I'm just kidding. Um, uh, the reason I love Jonah is, is, honestly, this was the first book I wanted to teach through when I first came here as the senior pastor, seven years ago or whatever it was. And, and we did, we delayed it a year, and then I thought, okay, we're going to teach on part of Jonah. And then I, we were adopting our kids and got caught out of the country, and I didn't even get to teach on it. So this is the first time I've had a chance to talk about Jonah, and I love Jonah for a number of reasons. But one of the big reasons I love Jonah is I'm Jonah. Like in my life, I have been Jonah, and I think in the future sometimes I have still have Jonah in me. And this book, when I was a new believer, I knew the story of Jonah, but I didn't get it. And for many of us, we know the Jonah and the fish story. But then the rest of it is to me is where the, where the real meat is. And the role this, the, this book has played in my life and the fact that I feel like I'm Jonah, like I love teaching through this. Mark kicked us off last week, our executive pastor, and, and really we're asking, he was asking, there are these three questions that we need to ask as we read Jonah. Where is God asking me to go? What is God asking me to do? And where might I be tempted to go the other way? Because that's what Jonah does. God says, go talk to these people who are just barbaric and brutal people. I mean, history tells us these people were bad and God was interested in them. And Jonah had no interest in trying to help them turn their lives around. He wanted them to pay. And he was tempted to go another way. And the good news for us is that when we go another way, God doesn't give up on us. And one of the the key takeaways from what Mark talked about last week that really stuck with me is is this idea that our disobedience affects everybody in the boat. And a lot of times the people in my life live in the ripples of my bad choices. And I minimize that. And that just was such a key takeaway from what Mark talked about last week. Well, today we're talking about Jonah chapter 2. Sometimes we don't get this far when we tell the story of Jonah, but Jonah is literally praying from the gut, like the gut of the fish, but really the gut of who he was. And, and, and what I want you to think about today, is there an area of your life where you feel overwhelmed? Is there an area where you feel like you might have hit bottom? Or you're so overwhelmed by something or someone? And the question I want to ask you is, how will you respond? Jonah 1.17 ends with this. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Mark talked about this a little bit, but I'll talk about it too. Uh, 
Sometimes the question is asked, do you really believe there was a real fish? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, Not a whale, (laughs) but a fish. I really do. And I'll tell you why. It's because four contributors over 800 years in Scripture, two in Old Testament, two in New Testament, referred to it like this was a real deal. And then Jesus talked about it like it was a real deal. And he even said, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, I'm going to be in the tomb for three days. Like he gives this imagery. And one of the reasons I believe, well, why would God do this? It's so hard to believe. That's exactly why he did it. One, because he's always asking you to believe something that kind of pushes you a little bit. But I don't think it was about that. I think God is a great storyteller. God is the Steven Spielberg of storytellers. Like, he, when he tells stories, before Spielberg was ever talking about E.T. or Indiana Jones or whatever, I can't even think of other Spielberg movies that are like these great images. Like, God takes, he wants to get Moses' attention, so he has a burning bush. Not just to get Moses' attention, because that's something we'll remember. It's imagery, it's a story. And he says, I want people to remember this happened. Like the story could have said, Jonah was on the boat going away and God said to Jonah, you're doing wrong. So he told the sailors, would you mind sailing over here instead? That's just not quite the same story, is it? God's a great storyteller because he wants to include you in his story. But this story, I believe, is historical. I believe it's truth. And in Jonah chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Jonah is here swallowed by a fish for three days and three nights. And there, Jonah surrenders. You know, the word surrender is an interesting word. And Mark made the point last week, surrender comes before salvation. Surrender is an interesting word because if you ask for that word where someone surrenders in any area of life, it's never positive imagery. It's someone at the end of the rope who's lost hope, who's lost the battle, who is now a prisoner. Like all these images come up of someone with hands up, down, defeated. Really, any area of life except in the area of our relationship with God. Every other area of life, it's a bad thing. But here, in the story of our relationship with Jesus, it's the ultimate good thing. That surrender is a positive thing, but it's a difficult thing. And it's a key word and a key decision that God calls us to again and again in the Bible, this idea of surrender. So chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. You think? (laughs) Like, what would you do at that moment? I mean, you've literally hit bottom. I mean, I guess it didn't tell what depth the fish was at, but, but he had hit bottom. Like, he's got nothing else to do. He's still alive. Probably can't believe it. I think he may have thought, I'm just going to end my life. This is it. And he's still there. So he prays. He does what we do. You know, it said there's no atheist in foxholes and, or in March Madness, I think. Like, there's, there's just like, when, when, you, when you get this desperate place, you cry out to God. And that's what Jonah does. And one of the take- takeaways for me about Jonah's story is, and one of the things, because I, I really at times think I'm Jonah, is Jonah has, has me beat. 
Like I get to some places in my life where I'm pretty overwhelmed. But I've never been in the kind of situation where Jonah was. I mean, in the water, thinking you're drowning, swallowed up, thinking God's turned his back on you because you turned your back on him. Like Jonah has, this, has me beat. And his rough situation seems to be getting rougher and Jonah hits the bottom and repents, sort of. As you read the story along, you realize he repents, but it's kind of a sort of. It says this, verse 2. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me, and all your waves and breakers swept over me. He starts this prayer of desperation. He starts this prayer of, I'm in over my head. And he recognized that God has the one who hurled him into the sea, not the sailors on the boat. God was doing this. The Lord provides the fish. God's the God of the sea and the land and all creation. And he has this prayer of desperation and The problem of prayers of desperation, the good side is, is we cry out in a very authentic way. God, I surrender. I need you. I have nothing else to turn to. The problem of prayers of desperation is we waver when we're not so desperate. And we see that in Jonah's story as it goes on later. But prayers of desperation are a great thing because we cry out, but somehow they don't always seem to stick. Sometimes they do. But some of the best prayers of the Bible are these prayers of desperation where people call out, sometimes not with great words. And I don't think God's concerned with the words we use when we pray. I think he's concerned with the attitude and the heart and our posture toward him and the authenticity of it. Some of the best prayers are prayers of desperation when you read in the Bible. Peter's walking on water and he starts to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me. And God did. There were people who were blind, who couldn't see anything, but they could talk. And so they're crying when they hear Jesus is walking by. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. God heard him. Jesus gives this model of authentic prayer when he's in the garden, knowing he's about to be betrayed by friends, ridiculed, beaten, abused, and eventually crucified, executed. And he cries out authentically. He says he's so stressed that blood's literally dripping out of his pores. He says, God, if there's any other way, any other way, yet not my will, but your will be done. And that prayer of desperation turns into a prayer of surrender for Jesus that models for us this idea that the best prayer we can pray is a desperate prayer of whether we're under the waves or we're we're head above water smooth sailing, on the beach, wherever it is, we're always in a place of desperation because without Jesus in our life, we are helpless. It's just sometimes we have a way of getting kind of comfortable. But if we can recognize that same desperation no matter what life is doing and cry out to him and surrender, God, it's not my will, it's your will be done. It's hard to do. Here's why no one likes surrender. One is we don't like the idea that we really need anything. 
We don't, we don't like the idea that we're in need. We, we, we like to be sufficient, self-sufficient. We like to be safe and comfortable and capable. And the Bible says, not only are you in over your heads most days in life, the Bible goes so far to say, and it's quite offensive, you're really so bad that you deserve death. Well, really, I'm not that bad of a guy. And we usually start comparing ourselves to others. It says, no, you really have this toxic thing inside of you. And it's really, the Bible calls it sin. And it's a preoccupation with self and putting yourself at the center instead of God at the center. It says, man, that really separates you from God. Not so much that he won't come after you and pursue you, but he has to deal with it. We don't like surrender because we have to stop blaming others and take responsibility. Like Jonah could have said, like, really? Like, those people are bad. And I'm not that bad. I'm a good guy. It's their fault or it's, it's somebody else's fault. And usually we, this is our go-to thing when we are fighting surrender. We like to say, but it's really their fault. It's really their problem. It's really them. But we have to take responsibility. We don't like surrender because we give up all our other priorities and desires. That's a tough thing God asks of us. It is to really say, not my will, but your will be done. And it's, it's your life, not my life. It's, it's all yours. That's a tough thing to do. And to what feels like giving up our freedom, which it actually is, and committing to a new leader and owner of our lives is challenging. That's what Jesus wants to be and who he wants to be in our life. And Jonah kind of does that. He repents, sort of. He goes on in verse 4 to say this. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet, I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. This is a great imagery. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. You know, I picture like this little like kind of a turban or like one of those things when you do with a towel or whatever. It's got seaweed and he's like, ah, what a day, you know? To top it all, my hair's messed up. Seaweed was wrapped around my head to the roots of the mountains, like the mountains, their roots, what's underneath. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. He's trapped. You, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. There's these prayers in the Bible called Psalms of Lament. If you read the book of Psalms, it's the very middle book of your Bible. It's in the Old Testament. And they're really prayers. And and when you read a lot of the prayers, some of them get kind of chippy. They're very authentic. They kind of ask a lot of questions sometimes. Especially these psalms, there are certain ones called psalms of lament. And Jonah's kind of doing that. He's actually drawing from the fact that he probably grew up around this. He was a prophet of God. He wasn't a very good one. And in and, and the Old Testament, there's these books about the, or by the prophets where we read their words as they tell people really bad news, <clears throat> seemingly, but it's really good news of saying, you're in a bad spot. You need to turn your life around because God still cares about you. Prophets had a tough call. Jonah's one of the few books in the Bible where it's a book about a prophet, not the words of the prophet. Like we're getting a glimpse of his life and what you learn is, man, Jonah was not a very good prophet. That, again, I'm Jonah. Like I'm not a very good prophet. I'm not a very good representative of God sometimes even. But somehow, when I'm at my worst or life's at its toughest, these authentic prayers is where God meets us. 
And what Jonah says is there's lots of things going on that threatened and surrounded and engulfed and wrapped around me and he feels trapped, tied up, and sinking, literally. And then I think he realizes that that this is the kind of thing God uses in our life to not just draw us to himself, but to make us more like him. The author of Hebrews knew that in Hebrews chapter 12 says this, and this is just a great way to think through, like if you're ever overwhelmed, but even if you're not, even if you're not, you should be, have that feeling because our deep need for him. The Hebrews 12 says this, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 11, 11 is like this faith hall of fame of these people that followed Jesus and followed God no matter what. Because of that, those witnesses, <clears throat> let us throw off everything that hinders What's hindering you right now? And the sin that so easily entangles. What entangles you right now? Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And then he says something about these things that entangle and ensnare and these things that get, get us sometimes and how God uses difficult things in our life for his good purposes. goes on to say this. In your struggle against sin... By the way, our biggest struggle is not against circumstances. What God tells us again and again, that the biggest threat to your life, to your soul, to your family, to everything is sin. It's the sin that so easily entangles. He goes, and in your struggle against that, Jesus fought the biggest battle. Fix your eyes on him. He's done that for you. But you have not resisted the point of shedding your blood. Jesus did, but you haven't. And you have, have, have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement? This is supposed to be encouraging that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's, what's the next word? Discipline. Now, when we hear the word discipline, a lot of times we think punishment. I think of Mr. Noteware's paddle when I was in junior high. That was Mr. Noteware's discipline. It was punishment. I think of Coach Dawkins in paddles and bear walks and in a different day in education where sometimes it got quite discipline-y. Um, we think of discipline as punishment, but not if you're an athlete. Discipline is the habit that helps you do the right thing over and over and over again till you excel and succeed. Discipline in school is doing the right thing over and over and over again until you are a good student and you get your degree or you get past that goal. Discipline in your health is doing the right thing and eating the right things and not eating the wrong things over and over and over again until you get to that place of that, the health that you desire. Like when we hear discipline, we think of one thing or the other. Habits of excellence and success or punishment. And when you hear this, the Lord's discipline, 
He is trying to give this habit like a parent would to their child. I want you to have this habit of doing the right thing because your life will be better. You'll be the best version of you. Like this is who I want you to be. The Lord's discipline. Don't make light of it. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you and says, you're doing it wrong. You're going the wrong way. This is wrong. Don't make light of that. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord's di- the Lord disciplines the one he loves. If God ever tells you you're wrong and disciplines you, tries to change your direction, that is as much a sign of love as the cross is. And because of the cross, we don't have to fear his discipline. His discipline is not punishment to push you away. His discipline is desiring to draw you into yourself. And because our sin, our disobedience affects everybody else in the boat, it matters for them as well. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. And it says this in verse 7. Endure hardship. If you're overwhelmed right now in life, I can't tell you if God sent it into your life as discipline or if it was a bad choice by you or somebody else or we live in a broken and fallen world and circumstances in life come over us. What I do know is whatever it is in any of those categories and more, God can use every single one of it for his good purposes. And whatever it is, endure it as a discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. And then verse 9, it says this. Moreover, we all have had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. Now, some of us had fathers or moms or someone that stepped into that role that didn't do that well. And sometimes it's hard for us to view God because of that image of someone who did not do that well. My parents did it well. But at the time, I did not think that. I did not leave them good reviews on Yelp <laughs> uh, for parenting. I didn't say, you know, hey, they're doing a great job and discipline me. And I deserved a lot of discipline. Let me rem- remind you what I said earlier. I was Jonah. I was a tough kid to parent. And I had every reason not to be, but I kind of put myself at the center. And that might be a hard thing for you to wrap yourself around, but when you look at the character of who God is, He is a loving, heavenly father. He is. And sometimes we have to wrestle with that imagery. How much more should we submit? Surrender and submission is a hard word for us. To the father of spirits and live. That's where life is found. They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness, this set-apart place, this special, specialness, holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Jonah would agree. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Your picture of how you view discipline and hardship And how God can use that will be a key for you in this whole process of whatever your story is, which will be a lot different than Jonah's, but there's a lot of similarities. And Jonah says this in verse 7, when my life was ebbing away like he is hitting bottom, I remembered you. 
There was something in his past that he knew of God's character and he knew of God's faithfulness and he knew, man, the God who says to those people that he would forgive them, these awful people that I won't go to, he says that to me too. And I remember that about who God is. So I cried out to him, my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Then he quotes this verse, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. There's this idea that a lot of times, and this is true in life, when you're sinking, you will grab the first thing that floats, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. That's why life guides are taught, be very careful how you rescue someone who's drowning, or you could be drowning yourself as well. Because when you're desperate and you're drowning, either externally in life circumstances, or pain on the inside from anything, you'll look for something and go, boy, that looks like it could be a breath of fresh air. And there's a lot of illusions of what is life in this world. Be very careful what you grab onto. Because it actually can become your life, the thing that you worship, and it can actually cause you very subtly to turn away from God's love for you. And God's love is not just acts of kindness. It's, everything's an act of kindness, but sometimes they're disguised as acts of discipline. And Jonah says, But I will, with shouts of grateful praise will sacrifice to you. I will give up something. And he says this, what I have vowed, what I have promised, what I have vowed, I will make good. Let me just give you a preview of the rest of Jonah. He does and he doesn't. He does what we do. God, if you get me out of this, I promise to, eh, our track record isn't so good on that. But we make these vows and we make these promises and that is a good thing. And our desire, I will make good, is great. But a lot of times we only make good, say we'll make good because we're desperate. And when we're not so desperate, we're not so good. And he ends by saying, I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Again, there's no atheist in foxholes. There's no atheist in the ER waiting room. There's, there's no atheist when you're sitting reading this report that the doctor gives you that's not really good news. There's no atheist when something tragic is happening and suddenly there's something in us that clicks and we turn and we reach out for something or someone. And Jonah says, I remembered you. Our choices always catch up with us. And there are consequences, but remember, they're discipline of this habit of God's trying to direct us toward himself. But the good news is not just through our consequences catch up with us. God does too. God is always just one step behind waiting for us to turn around and head the other way. He's there. He pursues us. Not to rub our nose in it, but to put our lives centered in him. God is always catching up with us. There's this relentless grace of Jonah and this work of transforming us and our need is to surrender our lives to him. Tim Keller has this great quote. He says that, that we are not competent to run our own lives until we realize that we are not competent to run our own lives. Let me say this again. It's a great line. We are not competent to run our own lives until we realize we are not competent to run our own lives. This is the consistent three theme of the Bible. You were created for there to be a leader of your life, and it's not you. It's your creator, 
and it's your Savior. And there's something in us that keeps wanting to push him out of that seat. And we want him to be part of our lives, but not to be our life. And next week, John chapter 3, I can't wait to talk about that one. That's the one, that's the chapter. And there's even just one word in Jonah chapter 3. It makes all the difference, and it's this idea of surrender. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20, he said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's this idea of dying to self and being alive in Christ that we have oftentimes substituted as a mental exercise of just nodding in agreement. I believe Jesus is who he says he is, but not saying, I will give my life to him and be crucified and die to self so Christ can live in me. There's still a lot of me in me, and God is constantly wrestling with that. And the key to that whole thing, because no one likes the idea of surrender, But the thing is, the more you get to know who God is, the more you understand who Jesus is, it helps you understand who you're surrendering to. You're not surrendering to someone who will do you harm, but who will lead you well, who will do good, and promises to give you life, even beyond this life. So Jonah's given another chance In verse 10, he prays this prayer and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. There were two ways out for Jonah. (laughs) You ever thought about that before? (laughs) There were two ways out, right? A sign of the Lord's grace is he chose option one, not option two, right? So, again, we can do this the hard way or the easy way. Um, But there were two other ways for Jonah. There was life or there was death. Life is found in Christ and death is found in self. It's the consistent message of the Bible. There were two ways he could go. He could go back to God or he could go away from God. There were two ways to go. He could go toward God where God wanted him to do, or he could go away from it. And he still has that choice. We'll look at it next week. But Jonah is really a book of questions. Sometimes, literally, it asks questions. It even, even, in a very amazing way, presents a question, literally, for you to wrestle with that we'll talk about in week four. But it's a book of questions. And the question here is, what will Jonah do? But the bigger question is, what will you do? Because for all of us, there's, there's two ways forward. I can follow me or I can follow Jesus. I can go toward what God wants me to do or I can go another way. And Jonah's at this place of surrender and his place for him was at the belly of the fish. <clears throat> I wonder what happened the rest of Jonah's life. Did he ever go on a boat again? Did he ever go swimming? Did he ever get out of the shallow end? I don't know. Because there are certain places when God does something in your life, it's like that's the place where I surrendered. 
Like, did he ask some fishermen to go catch it and stuff the fish and mount it on his wall? So he could say, like, no, that's where I was. Like, that was my living room right here. And I would kind of go over here and hang out. Like, like I wonder how that played out. That was Jonah's place of surrender. I can show you where mine was. This was my place of surrender, right there. That arrow wasn't really there. I put that in there, but <clears throat> that's the football stadium of the high school where I grew up at, Richardson High School. And it's Eagle Mustang Stadium. We shared it with the Mustangs. It's Eagle Mustang Stadium. We had top billing. Some say alphabetical, but anyway. Um, <clears throat> section A, top, very corner. It was at night. Uh, I was Jonah, and I was running from God. I grew up knowing who God was, but the same way I knew who Jesus was, um, I knew Jesus, same way I knew George Washington. Jesus was religious, George Washington was political, but suddenly that night, at a place of desperation, I was like, man, I am a mess, and I'm pretty selfish. I think you might be better at leading my life than me, Jesus. And that's where it was. That's where it was for me. Jonah could say, man, I was in this fish, and I prayed from the gut. I was at a stadium, and I prayed from the top section A. Where was your place? Where's the place where you kind of raised the white flag and kind of put your hands up and said, I surrender. Here's everything. I surrender. It's yours. And for me, honestly, it's an ongoing surrender process. Because I fight for control. I can t- Here's what I've learned for me from that point on. Here's what God's looking for. Because at that point in my life, I knew all the facts about Jesus, but it didn't make a difference. Facts is not what makes a difference. It's faith. And what God is looking for is people with faith, not just the facts. It's not about what you know. There's no test unless you're in Bible school. Like if, you're in, if that's your major, you're a Bible major, there's probably a test. Study for that. But for most of us, there's not a test about what facts you know. The test is life. How will you live? Will you live by faith? And keep moving in the direction Jesus leads you? Or will you just live your life saying, well, I know there's a God, but it doesn't really affect how I live. Here's here's what faith means. Faith is this. Faith is believing who he is and doing what he says. Faith is always an action word. It's not an intellectual word. It moves you. And it sometimes moves you when you're in waters over your head. And you're heading in a direction you don't want to go. And sometimes we respond with faith when we have no other choice. Can I tell you, this is your best choice. And don't wait till you're in an act of desperation to do that. Believe who God is. And then do what he says. And that's one of the lessons Jonah learned. And next week we're going to look at Jonah chapter 3. And to me it is one of my favorites. Because again I feel like I'm Jonah. And I think probably some of you are too. And there's something that he wrestles with as he kind of starts backing off from his vow. Which we all do. And God wrestles with him on that I'd like us to think about and wrestle with as well. Let's stand for closing prayer. Hey in your programs today there's a card like this it's an invitation card for our easter series 
that starts on Easter and goes for four weeks. We're going to do three services at 8.30, 10, and 11.30. And this is an invitation card that tells what the series is about. This isn't for you. You've been invited. I'd like to invite you to Easter. We're doing Easter services, uh, an Easter series, for four weeks, three service times, and we're going to talk about living every day with hope. How do you live hope in life? You've been invited now. This is for you to invite somebody else. We are making room for four weeks to invite others because we live in a world that needs hope and God promises to deliver that, not just to be that for us, but to help us know how to practically live that and bring that to others. So please think about who could I invite to join me or just even make them aware that this is a place where they could go. Think of someone who's in a desperate situation that needs hope, someone that's new to town or in a new situation or doesn't know what to do. Like think of some people and please prayerfully put this in their hands. Let's pray together. God, thanks that you welcome our prayers, prayers of all kinds and any kind, like you let us kind of pray from desperate moments. You even tolerate some of our silly prayers where we make promises and you probably immediately know you don't mean that. But you let us come as we are and respond to you and then you start working in our lives to make us more like you, to make us more like the, the person you created us to be. And God, I do confess that I've been Jonah more than once. Thanks for his example, especially the the model of an authentic prayer in the middle of your discipline in his life. And help me to rethink what hardship looks like and even especially discipline looks like. The fact that you're engaging in my life to develop these habits of faith. God, I pray you'd work in my life this week and meet us all. uh, We're everywhere on our journey to point us to you and help us know our next step. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. If you'd like to talk, I'll be down at the front.